what is your life? There are eight or ten questions that you can ask yourself according to, to philosophers. These eight or ten questions literally encapsulate the dreams of every person here. Eight or ten questions that your whole life can be reduced down to. One of these is this one right here from the Bible, James 4, 14. What is your life? Where is it at? What are your dreams? Is your life measuring up to your dreams? Your life mediocre, unrewarding? Is that where you're living right now? Well, consider this. What does God want for your life? Jeremiah 24, 6 through 7, and I will, of course, paraphrase this. God said he will set his eyes on us for good and will bring us back to this land, meaning our promised land, our destiny, and build us and not pull us down and plant us and not pluck us up. Thank you, Lord that you're going to give us a heart to know you, that you're the Lord and we're your people and you're going to be our God and we're going to serve you with all of our heart. Amen. That's God's plan. So what is your life and how does it stack up with that? Well, as we've talked about building or manifesting your dream, it's foolish to think that you can just sit back and twiddle your thumbs and say, well, when my ship comes in, you know, I'll be here at the dock. Dreams never happen to people who sit and wait for them to come. Never. So if that's your hope, let me tell you right now, find something else to start putting your money on. Find another horse to bet on because that one's not coming out of the gate. I can tell you it's dead on arrival. Seriously speaking, dreams never happen when people just sit and wait for them to happen. They only happen when you aggressively pursue them with passion. And so we've talked about the steps necessary to make a dream become manifest. You've got to see it. I've done a number of series already this year. First series was see it, which has to do with vision. The second was say it, which has to do with speaking life over your own future, your family, your business, your ministry. So many people go around speaking death over their own life and never wonder and, and never realize or wonder why things are not getting any better. They just keep speaking death, death, death. And, and then one day wake up and say, why wasn't I blessed? Because you were so busy cursing yourself. You couldn't be blessed. Amen. Blessing tried to get in on a number of occasions. It couldn't get anywhere near you. The third step is to pray it, which has to do with the divine element or the component of God's supernatural assistance. And I want to tell you that you will never fulfill the dream for your life without God's supernatural assistance. And I just point that out. You say, but I know all kind of people who are living the good life that are not even serving God. Well, wait, wait a minute. Right there is where we have such a mistaken understanding of what the good life is. We think money in the bank account and assets is a good life. You haven't read the Bible. It said when goods are increased, sorrows are increased as well if you don't know God. Hello, help me out now. Some of the most miserable people in the world are people that have healthy bank accounts, but their marriages are not healthy. Their kids are not. You, can't, you hear what I'm saying? Their relationships are not. Their spiritual well-being is, is deplorable. They're contemplating suicide, have to take something in the morning to, to get to wake up and take something else at night to go to sleep, something in between just to be able to navigate through the day. Amen. 
No, for you to build your dream, which is to live the life that you want, you, have, you need God's help. And so we have now, we're now in the third series that I'm doing this year, and that is pray it. You've got to pray. And Daniel 11 and 32 says, the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out, everybody say, great exploits. Nobody wants you to live a mediocre life except the devil. You don't want to live a mediocre life. God doesn't want you to live a mediocre life. The only one who does is the enemy, and he has a vested interest in you never succeeding. Because if you don't ever excel and succeed, you don't bring any glory to God, and therefore God loses the testimony that he could receive if you were blessed. You bring him glory when you do well. And so in this series, and the next steps are pay it, play it, stay it, and then sanctify it. I'll get all of that later. In this series that I'm on right now, and I'll conclude today this part about prayer, I think I'm probably preaching the most significant or important information, giving you the, the most important material I've ever shared with you on prayer. And I've taught on prayer a number of times here through the years. Talked about 12 different types of prayer, seven that are devotional, which has to do with the area you stand in right there, devotional, you and God. Five strategic, which reaches outside where you stand, such as warfare praying. That's a strategic form of prayer. I've talked about that. Governmental prayers, that's not praying for your government or the governments of the world. It's not what I mean by that, though that is something you ought to do. God knows the <laughs> ever was a time we needed to pray for gover governments of the world. It is right now. Amen. All of them. No exception. By governmental prayers, I mean praying in the government of God, which is the only real hope the world has. Strategic prayers. For the last several weeks, I've been talking to you about the nature of God. And the reason for that is Hebrews says that he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And as I shared last week, when it says they must believe he is, that not only means you must believe God exists, but it infers that you must believe he exists as a certain someone. Here's why this is significant. If your understanding of who God is has been damaged or warped, and trust me when I say there are all kind of influences that will cause that to happen, from religion to your family to whatever, you know, if your understanding of who God is, and that's the God you're praying to, that equates to idolatry. Because the only prayers God is going to answer are those that are directed to him. Help me out. I'm preaching better than, than you're responding right now. If you're praying to this caricature of who you think God is, but God doesn't resemble that at all, you say, uh, <laughs> no thanks. I don't want anything to do with that. That's not who I am. You're praying to somebody else. Okay? And we make the mistake of thinking all we have to do is just sign the letter God. You know, I'll put a God on the envelope. That's all the address we need. Which God are you talking about? India has 333 million, 330 million, plus one as I added last week. So today I want to talk to you about one of the most basic and fundamental concepts of prayer. Let's go beyond understanding who God is, and now let's talk about whether God answers prayer and how he does. And I'm going to break this down and make it very simple, really simple. 
I don't want to oversimplify it to the place that I lose your interest or attention, but my experience, both as a believer and as a pastor communicating with people through the years, tells me that I need to do this. Um, years, Some years ago, and you know that I was raised in Louisiana, right? I've made you aware of that on several occasions. And <laughs> Clarence Pontin Falk was my grandpa. World champion duck and goose caller. That's no lie. Dudley, his son, my uncle, became world champion duck and goose caller after him. And they were commercial hunters. They were professionals. And they developed the Falk line of waterfowl calls. If you've ever hunted migratory birds, and I've shared this with you before, but just make this point. They made millions of dollars. So don't come to me because if you think that I got it, because I didn't, I wasn't even in the inheritance. Okay. I didn't get any of it. Amen. But they made millions. But I have spent many a winter morning in a duck blind or in a goose blind. And the Wildlife and Fisheries Department catches birds and releases them after they put a band around their, their leg. Are you all familiar with banding waterf waterfowl? They band them and they, they, they put a tag around them. It's called tagging the bird. And they do it both here in the U.S. and they do it in Canada, the breeding grounds up there. And the reason they do this is so they can track the migratory waterfowl and find out what's happening with them and whether they're okay and so how many, what their numbers are. And so every year there are a number of birds that are killed and they will have this ban on their leg. And what you do is you send it in or the number in and they will send you a little form that tells where the bird was banned, how old it, all the details about it, where it came from, and it's amazing. Flew 3,000 miles to get here and all that kind of stuff, and it's, you know, just you know, little stuff like that, but it helps them. And whenever I was duck hunting back in the day, on my duck call lanyard, which is you put around your neck and you got these duck calls, I had a whole ring of those little bands uh, from the legs of these waterfowl. Boudreaux shot a duck and it had a leg band on it. You think I'm making this up. I'm not. His name was Alphonse Boudreaux. That's a true story. Years ago, they, they didn't want to write the whole thing out. Washington Biological Survey, which was the address where you sent it into. So instead, they abbreviated it and instead of Washington, they put W-A-S-H, period. Instead of biological, they put B-I-O-L, period. And instead of survey, S-U-R-V, period. All you had to do was send it to that address, and they'd get it. One day they received a letter. Dear sirs, I shot one of y'all's birds. I followed the cooking directions on the leg tag. And let me tell you, it was awful. Wash, boil, and serve. Amen. <laughs> They since then, no joke, changed the address to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to accommodate Alphonse Boudreaux. I want to break it down so simple that even Alphonse Boudreaux can understand what I'm talking about today. Five ways God answers prayer. Go, grow, slow, flow, and no. Father, in the name of Jesus, speak a word to us right now. And as I always pray, it helps when the speaker is anointed. 
And I pray that you will allow the anointing to come. We don't want to just hear a lecture. We could do that in a classroom or even on YouTube if we needed to. But God, let your anointing come and make your word be alive. But even more importantly, help us to be anointed to hear in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Matthew 7, 7 through 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone, say it, everyone who seeks finds and to him who knocks, it will be open. Sometimes it seems that God answers some prayers and not others. And I spent a long time writing the, the one sentence I just wrote, I just read to you. It seems, notice I said it seems. The reason that I said that it seems that sometimes it seems that God, sometimes God answers prayers and not others is because I'm convinced that he really answers every single prayer that is prayed based upon this scripture and others. Everyone who asks receives. To him who knocks it will be open. Listen to this, Psalm 65, 1 through 5. Praise is waiting for you, O God in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. Verse 2, O you who hear prayer. Did you see that? To you all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Blessed is the man whom you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. And by awesome deeds and righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence of all of the ends of the earth. And then at that point, the psalmist continues in verse 5 to talk about some of the things that God does his, that he's worthy of praise for. He says, God, you're the confidence of the far-off seas. And usually when you're reading in the Psalms or in, in the Bible and it speaks of great seas or multitudes of waters, that is a metaphor for people. It means multitudes of people and masses of people. And so he's saying that even the far-off multitudes of people will call on you because you establish the mountains by your strength. You're clothed with power. On and on, you visit the earth and water it. The river of God is full of water. You provide grain. And, and the paths drop with abundance. You crown the year with your goodness. The psalmist David is now talking about why he worships God and why he believes that it's appropriate to go to God in prayer. I want to back up and look a little bit at the first five verses, though. Praise is waiting for you in the church, verse number one. Praise is waiting, awaiting you, O God, in Zion. It would be a tragic and a terrible thing if people came to church and forgot that we're supposed to be here to worship God. Can I hear an Amen. Truth is, people come to church for different reasons. But when God goes to church, God goes to receive praise. And if he doesn't receive worship and praise, then right away the foundational premise that has, drew in us, has drawn us together, there's a problem with that. And I want you to understand that the failure to be a worshiper may interfere with your prayers. And I don't want to spend much time on that. But in verse 2, he says, you, God, hear prayer. Oh, you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. Amen. But it started with praise in the first verse. God hears prayer. He makes that. It doesn't, 
doesn't say God hears some prayer. He makes the emphatic declaration God hears prayer. Then in verse 3, he says this, Iniquities prevail against me. Notice this. And as for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Now, this actually describes two types of problems that we face in life. The word iniquity there doesn't mean sin in my life. What it means is depravity or evil in the world. There is evil and depravity in the world, and that prevails against me. It does against all of us, which is why I am making the argument that for you to fulfill your dream and manifest your dream, you need supernatural help. You really do because there's evil in the world that is prevailing against you. And I even hear some people say there's no such thing as evil, and I'm I'm shocked when I hear that. I mean, whenever you read about, what was it, another 27 killed in that that camp, a refugee camp by ISIS just yesterday? You find in these mass graves hundreds killed by the Boko Haram? I mean, look at the terrorist activities, look at the crime, look at everything that's good. And you tell me there's no evil? That we did all of this by our little old selves? All I can say is if there is no evil, man really is in trouble. If what we're looking at is purely the result of man's activity, but the word here means evil or it means depravity. It refers actually to the work against, that is done against us by the wicked one. And from this, I will point out we're, we are protected by divine favor. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. The second part of that verse says this, you will provide, as for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. That's an altogether different thing from that first phrase because the first is evil, the presence of a wicked one. The second is our own fallings. We are humans and we make mistakes. We do things that are wrong. And I want you to be aware that one of the most important decisions you can ever make in life is to say, I am going to live my life and be aware that my actions always are connected to consequences. Always. Most people don't live that way. They they give themselves a pass. But if you could filter what you do in your life through the filter of the consequences that will follow it, it is amazing the difference it will make in the priorities in your life. Can I, can, I, can I just see a nod of the head, somebody that knows what I'm talking about? Now, we are protected against unmitigated evil by divine favor. But the psalmist is here saying we're also protected. Are you watching this? Even from our own transgressions because God is providing atonement. That was way back before Christ, so that was future tense when he said you will provide atonement. We live after the cross, so God has provided atonement for us. So we're protected from the evil one by divine favor. We are protected from our own transgressions by divine grace. Amen. The grace of God covers us. God has not dealt with us after our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. But as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions. Same word, from us. Amen. I mention this because one of the fundamental problems people have in praying is we know how flawed we are. And it's all about what we think we deserve. 
And if we know we're flawed and we go to God, then we have this thing on the inside where we don't really know if God will answer us or not because we know we really have done some stuff where we don't deserve an answer. All you got to do is say, grace, God. Amen. Grace. And like I said before, grace is not a blue-eyed blonde that I'm talking about either. I'm talking about the grace of Almighty God. Can I hear somebody say amen? And in verse 4, David goes on to say that there is a solution to both of these things, the presence of evil in the world and our own transgressions. And he says, blessed is the man whom you choose and cause to approach you. And, of course, the inference, it is inferred that the man that is approaching God is coming. You go to church for two reasons. One, you go to church to worship. The other, you go to church to pray. There are some other things we do, serve and et cetera, give and so forth. But, but Blessed is the man. Two things Israel always did when they came to church, worshiped and prayed. And he said, blessed is that man that you have called to approach you. You and I are called to be the children of God and seek him in prayer. And he said that we may dwell in your courts for we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. Now, what I'm talking about today is a level of life that is above just having money in your bank account. I'm talking about a level called satisfied. Anybody remember the old Rolling Stones song, I can't get no satisfaction. You don't know how many people are living their life and can't get any satisfaction. But there's a place in life where you can be satisfied, so blessed, but at the same time content. And in verse number 5, he goes on to say this, verse number 5, by awesome deeds in righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation. It's what Daniel is saying, that if you know God, you're going to live your life with supernatural exploits being a part of your life. You're not going to live a mediocre, boring life unless you just settle for that. Tell somebody, I'm not going to live an average life. Would you do that? Tell somebody, I was made for more than that. And so the psalmist says, God, you will answer us. God always answers prayer. Now, I'm aware that there's a verse, and somebody will be thinking of it right now, that says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear me. And I have to... I have to make this point that we need to understand what the word hear means in that verse. You don't take it literally because if you take it literally that God cannot hear me if I have iniquity in my heart, what it means is, is that God does not have the ability to hear you though you're speaking. And then we become like one of these, these kung fu movies where the lips are like, <laughs> and God is saying, huh? Huh? What, how? What's that? God is perfect. God hears. That's not the issue. What it means is God is not regarding the prayer because we have our attention focused on something that has come between us and him. Amen. And so I want to suggest that God always hears prayer, but our problem is we don't know how he answers. We only have one category, and that is yes. And there are five ways that God answers prayer. He says, go slow, grow, flow, and sometimes even know. 
By go, I, of course, refer to those times when Jesus says to us, as he did to the leper in Matthew 8, or the centurion in Matthew 8, or the man with palsy in Mark 2, or the Syrophoenician in Mark 7, or blind Bartimaeus in Mark 10, or the ten lepers in Luke 17, or even the nobleman whose son was near death in John 4, Jesus told them all the same thing, go thy way. Thy faith has made you whole. Amen. We love it when God says, go your way. It's changed as of right now. I have experienced that. How many of you have? When I was younger and we had just begun to travel in ministry and my son was only three. We hadn't been traveling long. We had been in the Midwest, Indiana, Ohio, down into Kentucky, preaching revival meetings. Came home for the Christmas holidays and uh, we were pulling a mobile trailer behind us, a travel trailer that you can put on the bumper like you see on the freeway. And that way I could keep my family together and then besides that, I mean, we were preaching in churches that were, were small and were very poor, and they didn't pay well, and we couldn't afford motel rooms and, and so forth. So I, I provided my own housing, and we came home, and I parked it at the church in Sulphur, Louisiana, because I was going to be preaching there. And that's also where Jerry's mom and dad live, my wife's mom and dad. And they were great people, members of that church. And Betty, my mother-in-law, asked, and I just called her mom. She said, can I keep Jonathan tonight? And uh, he's been gone for months. You've had those, that, those kids away. He and Shelly, Shelly was smaller. And I said, yeah, uh, Jerry said, of course. And, and so she put Jonathan in the bed with her that night. And she was a nurse. She's since retired. But during the night, we were staying on the church property in our little mobile home, the other three of us, me and Jerry and Shelly, of course. And there was a knock at the door about 1.30 in the morning. And I went to the door wondering, what on earth? And I mean, it was pounding. And opened the door, and Jerry's brother, Ernie, was there. And he said, you better run to the hospital quickly because Mama just woke up, and Jonathan had stopped breathing during the night. And he's unresponsive, and he will not wake up, and he, he doesn't breathe on his own. We're having to keep him alive. And I'm telling you, that will get your attention in a hurry. And we raced to the hospital, got to the ER. The doctor was leaning over him. I walked and said, I'm, I'm Jonathan's dad. This is his mother. What's the problem? He said, he stopped breathing. We cannot summon a breath response. And we're going to have to send him to Lake Charles. And they put him in an ambulance and sent him to Lake Charles. And uh, we went over there. And there was a doctor that had done surgery on me, an orthopedic specialist. Uh, pioneer in certain areas um, of orthopedic specialization and he had been called out at that time of the morning terrible automobile accident a lot of people really busted up so they called him out and when I walked in he said hey aren't you and he called me by name and he said I remember when you were just a teenager and I said yes doc how are you doing and, and Dr. Campbell and he said why are you here and I said that's my son back there and I just briefly told him in a couple of sentences what had happened. He went back, came back out. He was dressed in his green scrubs, and he just put his arm around my shoulders and just pulled me to him. He's a big old bear of a guy, and he said, son, I'm so sorry. He said, but we don't know what's going on, and the doctors can't do anything. They're getting ready to send him to St. Elizabeth's in Beaumont, and we don't know what's going to happen from there. It's whatever the neurological part of his brain is that makes him breathe. It just shut down. And they were speculating he might have gotten uh, some kind of medication or it could be SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, all kind of stuff. And Betty, my mother-in-law, had woken up just at that moment when Jonathan gave a sigh and stopped breathing and found him like that. And she, being a nurse, had managed to keep him alive. That's how, that's how close it was. 
We were put in an ambulance, rushed over to St. Elizabeth's. There was a urologist, very well-known urologist waiting for us there. And when we went in, they wheeled him straight back and to the emergency room, and they wouldn't let us go in. But an hour later, the door pushed open, and to our surprise, and we're sitting there praying, and we had called a pastor, and he had called pastors all over the United States, and they were praying, they were praying from one end of the country to the other. And they pushed the bed out. Jonathan was in it. He was hooked up to IVs. They said, we're putting him in his own room. And I said, what? I said, just a few minutes ago, you were struggling to keep him alive. And the doctor just shrugged and said, I'll speak to you in the room. And they brought him and put him in his room. And he called us in. And he said, uh, I don't know what happened. He said, three different hospitals in two hours. None of us know what happened. He just stopped breathing, and we thought it might have been some kind of medication or SIDS or something like that. And he said, whatever the neurological problem was, he said it just suddenly repaired itself, and it stopped all by itself. And the problem went away. And he's breathing fine now. And he said, I don't know what made it happen. And he said, I don't know what made it stop happening. And he turned and said, well, he just said, that boy is a different boy than the one y'all brought in here an hour ago. That's what he said. Went to the door, opened the door, stepped out with one foot in the hall and started to pull the door closed after him. And he stopped and he leaned back in. He said, let me correct one thing. He said, I said we didn't know what caused it, and that's true. But he said, I also said we didn't know what made it go away. That's not true. He said, somebody has been praying and closed the door and walked out. Amen. Sometimes God says, go. And that's what we did. We went home. Amen. And God healed Jonathan as quickly as that had happened. But, but God says, go. Go your way. One of the things that God may say is slow. We don't like that. That is a yes, but that we don't like it because we want it done right now, if not yesterday. Amen. But listen to this. God has a time. And he gets more glory when his time is recognized. And also it works out better for us. Hello, somebody? When I was a kid, I one time ate a green persimmon. It wasn't yet ripe. Trust me, you do not want to eat a persimmon until the time is right. They are delicious, but if you eat them green, they... Your mouth puckers. You look like this. You can't help but talk like this. You know, it, it, it's the most horrid thing. Galatians four and four. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, born under the law. Habakkuk two three. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It will surely come. It will not delay. God has a time. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. Ecclesiastes 3.1, to everything there is a season and there is a time. And sometimes God says, slow, because you're not yet ready. Hello, somebody. You're not ready yet to be able to move into your destiny. Amen. And so if God opened it up for you, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be available yet. It wouldn't be ready yet. Uh, let me explain it like this. I talked with Ken Melanson. For those of you who have never learned how to pronounce Louisiana names, it's 
not Cormier, it's Cormier. And it's not Melancon, it's Melonso. Amen. So a few of y'all know that. But Ken's family is from Louisiana way back when or wherever. And Ken's a great guy. He's been in law enforcement over 30 years. He and his wife, Felicia, and their daughter. been members here at CT for years. And Ken and I met. Ken is running for Harris County Constable of Precinct 3. And he's a member of this church. And they're devout believers. And, and um, he's, he's helped us here in so many ways. He shared with me how in his career, when it was earlier in his career, he didn't get a certain promotion. He wanted to be captain. Instead, he had people oppose him and even plot and conspire to get him off the force. And he came to church on that Sunday about 12 years ago, and he shared this with me recently. I didn't know it. And I was preaching, and if I remember correctly, because I do remember the when I was preaching that series, I was talking about that God, if the enemy digs a pit for you, that God will protect you and it caused the enemy to fall into that pit, and he'll still promote you if you'll just put your trust in God. And Ken said it meant so much to him. And he said, you know, he said he didn't get discouraged in the middle of all of that. He used his time to prepare. One reason God says that we've got to go slow is simply because of the fact maybe you're not ready to move into your destiny yet. Watch this. Deuteronomy 7, 22-23, God told Israel, I will drive out the inhabitants little by little. Uh-huh. I'm not going to drive them all out right now because if I drive them all out right now, the mice, the locusts, the wild, wild things will take over. You know, the, the place will be ruined. It'll be a mess. So as you grow, I'm going to give it to you. As you, you grow, you got that? And so what you need to do is you need to understand that sometimes God says slow because he's waiting on you, amen, and giving you time to advance and prepare. And so Ken used this time and began to continue, continued his studies and serving and worked with the anti-terrorism task force. They actually took down a plot to where terrorists were plotting against one of the refineries right here in Baytown and worked with the anti-cartel task force, one of the dr biggest drug busts in the history of this nation. He was involved with that right here from that one of those cartels down in Mexico. And I mean, been shot at like uh, so many things happened. Worked with other agencies and divisions, but you know what happened? He ended up getting his promotion, and guess what happened to the guys who opposed him? They're not even working there anymore. Amen. Amen. And early on, he faced a test. What's this? He was called to a shots fired right there on Uvalde, only a few miles from here. Got there, whoever the perpetrator was, the, the suspect that fled. He went into the, the place. He was first on the scene, first responder. Got there, went in. There was $1.2 million there. He was by himself. He could have taken a brick or two, you know what I mean? And, and, and some folk would have been tempted if you don't think they wouldn't have been. Look at what happened when that armored car door flew open here in Houston, two or three weeks ago. I mean, folk running up and down the highway saying, Christmas, baby, Christmas in April, amen. Look, and some people even asked Ken afterward because the others got there right behind him, why didn't you take advantage of this? And he said, he said, I couldn't. It's not integrity. That's the kind of guy we're talking about that's running for this office. And, 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 and they said, but nobody would have known. He said, God would have, amen. You have to admire that. And so since then, he's led hundreds of officers 
and a big department. He's had millions of dollars under his control and a budget because that was a test. And God was slowly moving him into his destiny. Sometimes God says go. Other times he says slow. Other times God says grow. Meaning this, why should God promote you if you don't do what Ken did and invest in your own future? Oh, now I'm going to talk to you. Amen. I need you to hear this because when God says grow, that's also a qualified yes. It just means that you can't be lazy and use prayer to escape doing your part. Because some of us don't want to do our part. We want God to do it all. I'm going to sit here. God, as soon as you get ready to bless me, you know where to find me. Amen. God said, uh-uh, it don't work like that. Look at the numbers of times that God, when he healed somebody or answered their prayer, required them first to do something. Amen. But before he could perform a miracle, he many times required somebody to first do something. Cana, first miracle he ever performed at the wedding, turned water into wine. He said, go fill the pots with water. That's not as easy as you think. They didn't have a well in the backyard. There was no community plumbing. They had to go to the well that everybody else used, which could have been a mile away. In Africa, it can be five miles, ten miles away. And they had to carry these pots of water back with them. Why didn't he just say to the empty pots, be filled with water? He could have done it that way. But God was establishing a divine precedent that before he does a miracle, he wants you to do your part. Hello, somebody. Prayer does not replace preparation. I liked what Ashley said when she was diagnosed. She didn't go to screaming and wailing, oh, God, heal me. She said, I'm going back to church. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to do my part. And they've been faithful in the house of God ever since then. You do your part, and then God will do what you cannot do. Amen. When the blind man asked for sight, Jesus spit on the ground, rubbed it on the man's eyes, and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which was miles away. And the man had to find his way blind to the pool, go down steps because the pool was actually recessed down into a, a place that you could only enter by steps that were slippery where others had been up and down them after going to draw water. And this blind man had to go and then kneel down and put water on his face. Well, why didn't Jesus just heal him right there? Because he's working on a principle here. That you go do your part, I'll do mine. The ten lepers had to first go see the priest before they were healed. Why didn't he just heal them right there? Because they had to go into Jerusalem. I'm talking about men that are sick and fevered, whose bodies are decomposing on them while they're alive. I'm fingers falling off. You go show yourself to the priest. Oh, come on, Jesus. Time out. Get real. These guys are sick. No, you don't understand. There's a principle. You do your part. I'll do what you can't do. Amen. But I, don't, I will not do my part and yours too. Hello. Same thing true in the Old Testament. Second Kings, when they were fighting Moab and ran out of water, God said, dig ditches, I'll fill them. But wait a minute, God, we're hot. we're hot, we're tired. We don't have any water. We've been fighting in a battle. They were about to die of thirst. It's in the middle of a desert place. God said, dig the ditches, I'll fill them with water. But God, we're too tired. If you can't do your part, I'm not going to do mine. Don't use prayer as an excuse to condone your lack of investment in your own future. If you won't invest in yourself, why should God invest in you? 
Oh, I'm sorry. Did I just offend somebody? Hello, go back to school, work, get a promotion. Why would I hire you and give you a promotion if you're the same person that walked in the, the gate 10 years ago? Bring something new to the table. Hello. Prepare yourself. Sometimes God is saying go. Sometimes he's saying slow. Sometimes he's saying grow. Hello. And sometimes God is saying flow, which means just flow with what I'm doing. That is also a yes. All four that I've mentioned up to this point, including this one, are yeses. But flow is a qualified yes. That means flow with what I'm doing. Here's the good news. It might not come out exactly the way you thought it should have. But it will always be better than what you thought it should have been. When God says flow with it, hear what I'm telling you. God's better at planning things than you and I are. Amen. David said, I'm going to build God a house. And God said, great idea, David, but flow with me here. You're not going to build a house. Your son is. But I'm going to build you a house. You're going to get more blessed because you're flowing with me than if you do it your way. Paul said, I'm going to go into Asia to preach. God said, great. Glad you want to share the gospel. But flow with me, Paul. Don't go into Asia. I've got a Macedonian waiting for you in the West. And Paul had a dream that very night. You see, God can say go, but with modifications. And uh, hallelujah, somebody. And I'm closing by saying God can also say no. What's this? out onto Hollywood Boulevard to ask young kids, what is the worst thing you ever heard mommy say? <laughs> kids are usually pretty honest about these things, so, well, let's find out what they had to share. Don't Does answer mommy ever yell? Yes. What does she say when she yells? No. 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 How many times, mom and dad, have you said no to one of your children that you love with all of your heart? Why? Because they want to live on the M&M diet. M&M's for breakfast, cake for lunch, and ice cream for supper. If you leave a child to choose its own path and you give in to that, you are actually guilty of abusing that child. You're hurting that child. Right now, I'm telling God, God, I don't know what you know. And I'm giving you the permission if I ask for something to say no if it's not good for me. You can make whatever adjustment and modification you need to make that you can receive glory. You say, well, I'm an adult. Yeah, so was Paul. He was the apostle Paul. And God still told him no. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, where he asked the Lord three times for the thorn to be removed from his flesh. And God said, this is the way it breaks down, Paul. Either ride with me on this or you're going to have to choose the other option here. 
Amen. What I, I want you to know is, Paul, I'm going to use you to write over half of the New Testament. You're going to have revelations nobody else in your lifetime will ever have. If you want great exploits, you've got to let me say no to this request. If you want mediocrity for the rest of your life, and you're willing to just sit on a church pew and be an average believer from here on out, I'll give you your request. Which one do you want? And Paul said, I will therefore glorify in my infirmity. Meaning that I'd rather have the revelation and I'd rather know God and I'd rather have God use me and I'd rather have the anointing and I'd, I would rather turn nations upside down than that live in quite obscurity and anonymity and get my own way. And so sometimes God says no because he doesn't want you to miss out on your destiny.